things were going even better for Daniel since the statue in the flaming hotbox incident. He'd been around long enough now to be working for a new king, known by some as King Darius. Even though Daniel was still a long way from home, in someone else's land, he was speaking a different language and had to answer to the name Belshazzar instead of Daniel, he was brimming with spirit and intelligence, and he so completely outclassed everyone else in the business of ruling the kingdom, the new king decided to put him in charge of the whole kingdom enterprise. Now, of course, this didn't sit well for the hometown wannabe vice-regents and governors, so they got together to dig up some dirt on him. But Big Dan was a clean skin. They could find no evidence of misconduct, illegal betting or social media indiscretions. Daniel was totally exemplary and trustworthy. They were going to have to scheme up something religious to catch him out on. They managed to convince King Darius that the vice-regents and governor's union had all agreed the king should issue a new decree. A decree that stated... For the next 30 days, no one is to pray to any god or mortal except the king. And anyone who disobeys will be thrown into the lion's den. And, O oh great king, you should make it unconditional, as if it was like written in stone, like a really important law. And of course, King Darius, keen to keep the vice-regents and governor's union on side, signed the decree. Now when Daniel learned of the decree, he continued to pray just as he had always done. Three times a day he knelt by his upstairs window that faced his old country and he prayed, thanking and praising his God. The hometown vice regents and governors knew exactly where and when to catch him out and of course just happened to find Daniel praying, asking God for help. And just like my older sister catching me stealing tin tams from the fridge, they went and squealed to the king, reminding him of the royal decree, and dobbed in Daniel big time. At this, the king was pretty upset and tried his best to get himself and his favourite guy Daniel out of the stitch-up. In fact, the king spent the whole day looking for a loophole in the decree. With even more pressure from the smug conspirators, the king eventually caved in and ordered Daniel thrown into the lion's den. No doubt, having heard of the flaming hot furnace incident, the king says in faint hope to Daniel, your God, to whom you are so loyal, is going to get you out of this? So Dan was thrown into the lions and a stone slab was placed over the opening of the den. To prevent any shenanigans, the king sealed up the cover with his signet ring and the signet rings of all his nobles. The king went back to his palace, but he couldn't eat or sleep and spent the night with a growling stomach. At daybreak, he ran through the lion's den and called out anxiously, Daniel, has the God whom you serve saved you from the lions? G'day, mate, says Dan. My God sent an angel who closed the mouths of the lions so they wouldn't hurt me. I've been found innocent before God and also before you. I've done nothing to harm you. Well, when the king heard these words, he was pretty pumped that his best CEO had survived. Then the king, no doubt feeling a bit wiser than before, commanded that the conspirators who stitch up Daniel on a religious technicality 
be thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. Before they could hit the floor, let's just say the lions did not disappoint. King Darius then flooded every social media channel at his disposal to every people group, language group, community group and lions club across his kingdom, decreeing that Daniel's God shall be worshipped and feared in all parts of the kingdom. From then on, Daniel was looked after and lived a life that went well for him because he remained faithful to God, even when under fire. The end. And thanks, Peter. That's fantastic. And if you have missed any of Peter's fabulous instalments so far, you can collect the whole box set. They're available on our app. If you go and check it out under um, resources, you can actually watch all of them and check them out. You could use them in your life groups. You can sort of go back over them and enjoy them. That's fantastic. Now, I've got this thing here. Ready? Kids? Children? Are there any children in the room? Can you tell me what this puzzle is? Anybody? What's the solution? What is this depicting? Anybody? Yeah? Go. Phoebe? Courage under fire. Because that's our topic. But bravery, yeah. So courage under fire. And that's what we are talking about this morning. Welcome, kids, if you're in the room. It's school holidays. Don't we love it? Now, we are not likely to have a lion's den nearby and somebody looking to throw us in, right? Not an issue for us. Not that I know of. But we are still nonetheless under fire. Even as Elise just went blank looking right at you. Even as Elise talked about this morning, in our lives, we are still under fire in various ways. We're bombarded by stuff, invitations in every direction, causes that we're being asked to support, all sorts of different things coming our way, demands, advertisements, issues, climate responsibilities, social justice things. There's stuff coming from every direction. We are indeed under fire. So what I wanted to ask, the question is, what is courage? Because I think our young friend Joel here this morning, he exhibited bravery. Okay? That was brave. Just spontaneous in the moment, having to be gutsy enough to follow through. So there's bravery, but I want us to think about courage because it's slightly different. Courage is taking action even though you are afraid. Although maybe that's what Joel was too. Taking action even though you're afraid, recognising the fear and actually going that direction even though everything in you wants to run the other way. Standing your ground even though you want to run the other way. Keep facing the right direction when everything in you wants to run. That's what courage is. It's knowing full well that something's dangerous but standing anyway. And courage, I think, comes with something that sits underneath it. Something that sits underneath it, like a cause that makes us want to go that way and not run away in fear. Like a cause, something that we really value, something that's really important. And I want to call that very idea a conviction. I want to look at convictions for a few moments. What is a conviction? A conviction is a firmly held belief. Elise talked about some of those that she has had to grapple with and begin to understand. So it's more than just a personal preference. It's more than just an idea or a subjective opinion that you might hold. It's something that you are thoroughly convinced about, something that you know that you know that you know. 
And it may be something that you've been taught or it may have come out of an experience. And it's not just opinion that we hold that we might like climb up into our high horse and, you know, shouty about. It's something that sits inside of us, a deep conviction. We are convicted of something, something that we know, we know, we know. Now, here's my little side piece of information for you. I personally wonder whether our convictions need to be time-stamped. Because sometimes we need to be willing to go back and have another look at them. A bit like what Elise said before, evidence-based, something or other clever about uni. (laughs) We actually need to be willing to go back and have a look at what our convictions are. What are those things that we think that we know that we know that we know and actually reassess them and have another look at them? So I think they need to be time-stamped so that we can hold them lightly I wonder if we need to have strong convictions and gentle opinions. Quick, everybody, grab your phones. Take a photo of that. Quick. That's really good. That's really worthwhile actually thinking about through your day-to-day the difference between having really strong convictions about something as opposed to being really strongly opinionated. Let's make sure that we've got strong strong convictions and gentle opinions. And so a conviction for somebody who might choose to follow Jesus will be informed by him. They'll be informed by who God is, by who we know God to be, by what God's done, by what God tells us about himself and what he's doing in the world and what he wants of us, what he says in scripture. So that deep thing that we know, that we know, that we know, if we're a follower of Jesus, will be informed by who Jesus is. They'll be informed by the Bible. So Daniel, our guy Daniel, he had a really strong conviction and he held it really strongly. Kids, do you know what his big conviction in today's story was? I'm not going to worship that guy because God says worship only me. And the king, King Darius, was saying to Daniel, everybody has to worship only me. You're not allowed to worship any other gods. And Daniel knew that he knew that he knew deep down inside him and it was a real conviction, not just an opinion that he had, it was a real conviction that he must not worship anybody other than God. So the backstory of Daniel, we've heard a little bit over the last few weeks. Daniel was not living at home. He had been taken captive and was living in a different land, in a different place with different rules, different food, different types of uh, leaders, different types of traditions. And he was having to really choose carefully about the things that he said, yep, I'm happy to do that. I might change that a little bit. And there's no way I'm going to do that because I'm convicted that I shouldn't. And he was living in that situation, in exile, far away with other rulers. And today, we're going to have a look at what he did in that moment when he was asked to do something that went against his convictions. So I wonder what your convictions are. I wonder if you know what your real convictions are. And if you don't, don't go to Google and type in, what are my convictions? Because it'll tell you to go and like look up some in a police website, and I don't have any convictions, I promise. No, not those convictions, but the the convictions that I'm talking about today. So you might want to ask these sorts of questions. These are really helpful questions, probably dozens of other questions, but these are just off the top of my head. Ask questions like, what's been the most meaningful in your life? 
What made those times really meaningful? What things make you angry? What makes me angry is that cricket on the floor right there that's really distracting me. (laughs) What things make you angry? Thank Thank you, Troy. Oh, it's gone. It's okay now, as long as I can't see him. What things inspire you? What things really matter to you? And if you're not sure what your convictions are, then maybe do a few of these sorts of exercises and have a think about what your convictions are. Here we go. He's back in his box. All is well. Thank you. Because there's no way I would have put my hand in that box. Are you all with me? Yep. So... When you work out what your convictions are, can anybody guess what I'm going to do? You stand on them. When you work out what your convictions are, you stand on them. You get a, you got a totally different foundation. You get a totally different perspective. When you work out what your convictions are, what are the things that really, really matter to me? What are the things that I know that I know that I know? that God has informed me ought to be my convictions, that they're aligned with his convictions. You stand on them and you get a really different perspective. And young people, if you don't know what your convictions are, that's okay. Stand on your parents' convictions while you work out your own. Unless your parents' convictions are wildly, obviously, like, don't, don't, don't hold me to that. But if you don't know what you really think, if you don't know what you really value, that's okay. Sit tight with your parents' convictions. Jack, up the back, just sit tight with them for a little bit longer because eventually you'll work out what yours are and you'll put them down and you'll stand on your own. And that's a transition season for young people and I think it's really helpful. When I first came to know Jesus... I was a young adult and I went to Diamond Valley Baptist Church and I walked in and the people up the front were talking about Jesus and the people in the young adults Bible study that I went to were talking about Jesus and I remember, I actually visibly remember thinking, wow, I want to stand for the things that that guy stands for and I began to unpack the person of Jesus. I began to look at what mattered to Jesus and I remember thinking, I want those things to matter for me. Because I'm not sure I had any good solid foundations that I was standing on. And I needed some because I was being under fire from every direction about lots of different choices, which you are as a young adult. And I remember leaning in and going, that Jesus, I'm going to take his convictions and I'm going to call them my own. And it made a huge difference. And Daniel did the same. When they went and looked at Daniel's life, so there's these guys and they're, they're plotting to bring him down because they're just jealous of him. They're not trying to bring him down because he's a bad guy. They're trying to bring him down because they're jealous and they have a close look at his life and they could find no corruption in him. He was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. He was absolutely straight bang on with his convictions. When Daniel was asked to do something that he knew went against his convictions, he actually fell to his knees. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published by the king, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem, his hometown. He set his eyes and he focused on 
where he wanted to be and where he learned his convictions. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. In that moment when he could have gone, I'm standing on my convictions and I know that I know that I know that I cannot worship anybody other than, oh, well, who cares? Sure, hops off his convictions and goes, he doesn't. He stands firm on his convictions and he chooses not to. And the first thing he does is he goes and says, God, you're going to have to help me. God, you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to help me stand on my convictions and to stand firm. So here's my question. Where does courage come from? Like, do do we muster it up from within? Are there people who are just like naturally courageous? They're kind of born that way and they're naturally courageous and strong enough to stand on their convictions. Do we call it up from within or do we take it from somewhere else or do we borrow it? Where does it actually come from? How can we find courage? I've got a clip that I want you to watch. If you're watching on the live stream, we've posted a link if you want to watch this video because we're not allowed to show it. Um, broadcast it live, but have a watch of this clip and see if you can pick one of my first points about where courage comes from. Frodo's courage come from but where did all the other people's courage come from it came from each other it's a classic movie trope who's with me and then one person stands and then two more people stand and then four more people stand and then everybody stands courage is contagious courage is contagious so find other people who share your convictions so that when you are asked to stand on your convictions you look around and go well are we gonna Because Daniel did that. He had three mates. They were called Shadrach. Nice work. Some of you were here last week. Shadrach, Meshach, and Benny. He had three mates. And they stood with him in all sorts of different settings. 
Courage is contagious. My second point is that maybe sometimes we have to rehearse our courageousness. When my children were little, we used to do a lot of role play to teach them how I wanted them to behave when we were out and about. It just came naturally to them. And I heard a story a little while ago of a young guy and he had in his head rehearsed what he was going to say when his friends offered him a vape. He had rehearsed in his head when it eventually happens, someone passes it to him, he's going to go, no thanks, I've looked into it, it's not for me. When someone passes it to him, he says, no thanks, I've looked into it, it's not for me. When someone passes it to him, he says, no thanks, it's not... He had rehearsed it in his head and so inevitably when the time came, it just rolled out and he did it and he stood at his convictions that that's not what he wanted to do. I wonder if we need to actually rehearse our courageousness, to actually have a think about what it is that we want to stand on and what settings we might find ourselves in where it does not come naturally or it does not come easily and actually have a think about how to deal with it and how to rehearse in those moments. The last one, I wonder, is whether we need to take it. So we can borrow it because it's contagious. We can call it up from, from within because we've practised it and rehearsed it or we can actually take it. On my fridge at home, I've got magnets that say, take courage for I have overcome the world and I look at it regularly because Jesus said these words. He said these words to his followers when he was talking about how they ought to live and he said, take courage for I have, I have conquered all. Take courage because it is all solved. Take courage because I am in control. Take courage because the solution is at hand. Take courage from God. So in a time a while ago, I was sitting in a cafe and I was writing in my journal and I was in a really, really tough place because I knew something that I knew I needed to do. I knew I needed to do. And so the words I wrote in there is, God, where will my courage come from? How will I be able to do the thing that I need to do? Where does courage come from? And I remember hearing God say, you take it. You take courage. And then I had to have a big think. Where do I take it from? Ah, I take it from God. I take it from the God of the universe who is absolutely at work in this world. And he has given us an image of how he wants this world to work, how he wants this world to operate and what he wants our convictions to be. So God told me to take courage. And so I wrote that down in my journal, and I looked at it last night and saw those words, take courage, and I did. So when, when we take courage, when we actually think about what our convictions are, Troy put this picture up. We've been looking at this picture a few times now. When those convictions that we need to stand on maybe don't match our behaviour. And I wonder whether it's worth actually having a look at our lives. If, if you go and have an investigate, you might go, I've written what some of my convictions are. This is what they would look like in my life. Ooh, the don't. <laughs> or this is the way I'm acting. Do they represent my behaviours? My convictions, does, do they look like they match? It's a really worthwhile exercise to do just to have a think about whether they match. So I've got some thoughts, and I'm going to run through these quite quickly. Our convictions need to outweigh the cost. 
That is when we will stand strong when we're under fire, when we're under pressure, when we actually have a look at what our convictions are and they, they outweigh the cost that's being put in front of us. You know, the cost of some ridicule or the cost of losing an opportunity or the cost of losing a good job or the cost of losing a friend who's not good for you anyway, when those convictions outweigh the cost. And I wonder if a good tip for us is to add weight to our convictions, to actually go back at them, have another look, thicken them up, make them heavier, make them broader, make them stronger, make them more solid. And we do that by asking God, by researching, by looking more deeply and questioning, why is it that I think that? Why is it that I believe that? Why is that important to me? Add weight to our convictions. The other thing we can do is we can unhook a bit of the weight of the costs. We can actually go back and say, does it really cost what I think it's going to cost me? Is the cost really that weighty? I wonder if Daniel hefted them and said, my whole life getting eaten by lions? Ah, whatevs. You know, I I wonder, I wonder if he he weighed the cost and went, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? I don't know if I would have weighed them up that way. I'm weak and broken and soft and frayed and I was too afraid to even stand too close to the box of crickets. But if my convictions are that weighty and I go back and go, the, the costs... So, so what? So what if I don't have the money or the thing or the impressiveness or the title or the favour or the popularity or the whatever it is that I fear I'm going to lose? What benefit is it to me if I don't hold my convictions strong, those convictions that God has put in my heart? I am looking at the time and I'm going to call the band up. Come on up. I was going to show a clip from the video of Chainsaw, Hacksaw Ridge, Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, and it's the story of Desmond Doss. And his conviction was weighty. He knew that God told him, do not kill. And he was faced with uh, heading off to war and he didn't want to carry a gun. Really worthwhile movie watching he actually had to weigh that up and he said no the cost of you know going to war and he weighed them up and he said I will not surrender my conviction he was humiliated he was ridiculed they were mean to him in that movie they told everybody else you cannot trust this guy but in the end he actually went to war and he fought without a gun because he fought for people's lives. And the, the battle that he was in, uh, Hacksaw Ridge it was called because it was on the edge of a big ridge, his whole battalion was asked to retreat. And he was the one guy who didn't. He stood at the top and he kept going out into the field and bringing the wounded. And every time he brought another wounded person and lowered them solo down that cliff, he said, God, give me one more life. He stood on his conviction 
and lives were changed. In fact, it's a true story. And he saved 75 people's lives that day. But I reckon he saved more because people looked at his conviction and said, ah, who is this God that he's brave enough to stand up and hold his convictions no matter what? I wonder what it will look like if we stand on our convictions. If I do indeed believe that God created the heavens and the earth and that we are to care for the environment, will I stand on that conviction even if it means I can't buy the thing I want that everybody else has got? If I do indeed believe that all people matter to God, will that influence the way in which I treat everybody I come across? Or will I be a bit wishy-washy? If I do indeed believe that life is better with Jesus, which I really, really do, I know that to the core of my being, will I tell people? Will I own it? Will I stand on it? Will it define me? Or will I, oh, people might tease me or people might be unkind or people might judge me. Like, no, I weigh it up and I go, I will stand on that conviction. What would it look like if we chose to have courage under fire and stand on our convictions no matter what? Weigh up the cost and go, nope, my convictions are my convictions and I'm going to stand on them. There's one who was braver than Daniel. And that's Jesus. Jesus stood in his conviction that all people needed to be brought back to God. And he stood on that conviction at great cost to himself. And when the people went running, just like Daniel, they found him alive and well because he had overcome the world. And that's a conviction I'm going to stand on. How about we sing?